Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. So Mike Kottmeyer is taking time out of his pre-vacation preparation to let me uh, incite him with questions that will probably result in a lot of expletives. So Mike, it, taking time out. Yeah, we had a little prep call on this and it was it was energetic. I, I was feeling indignant over some things. So, but it's, it's good to be back, Dave. Always nice to talk to you, man. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Um, so yeah, the question, sure. the thing that I brought up, I said I wanted to talk about metrics. And the thing that I wanted yeah. to talk about was the more that I learn about Kanban, the more that I study the Kanban metrics, because it is something yeah. I've become like a student of, the more I'm like, why the hell is anybody in Scrum even looking at velocity or thinking that that gives you any sense of predictability? Because the right. only way you're ever going to actually get that is if you track cycle time. Yeah. And you went off. <laughs> well, it wasn't it wasn't that I went off, right? It's like it's like everybody wants to um reject things that they don't actually um apply appropriately. Um okay. so I'll give you a little bit of a backstory. So so when I first got um introduced to the whole no estimates thing um on on uh on Twitter or something like that, mm-hmm. I started that. digging into it. Like I, at the time, this was a long time ago. I, I wasn't even all that familiar with Kanban at the time. Didn't fully understand what was going on. I'd been familiar with David Anderson's work around theory of constraints and things like that. So in general, kind of I knew. And I was like, well, so like the, to me, the whole premise behind no estimates was that you basically just, in effect, run just what you're saying. You just run things through a Kanban and you measure cycle time. But, but if there's a, a tremendous amount of variation in the size of the requirements, like lots of things are really big yeah. and then random things are really small, it's like, it's like, is the average cycle time like a super useful metric? Like maybe, like, but it's like you could have a, a big batch of big things and then followed by a big batch of small things and, and how would right. you know? So one of the things I started unpacking was with the idea that if you if you're going to do no estimates and you're just going to do flow and you're just going to rely on cycle time, what you're, what you're fundamentally assuming is that the things that you've broken down are relatively similarly sized, mm-hmm. right? Everything's like a, a size of a one or a two or a three, if we're going to use like a Fibonacci kind of a thing. Sure. And so in the presence of similarly sized backlog items, I would make the argument that you have fundamentally estimated. Okay. Right. That's really it at the end of the day. Right. So it, it, to me, it's like a fakey thing. So for, for no estimates, cycle time based things to work, everything needs to be relatively the same size. Okay. So, and and then I'm just kind of like, well, if you're going to do that, you're estimating anyway. So it's like, what does it matter? All right. So I, I want to, for anybody who's not familiar with this, if you go to Twitter, type hashtag no estimates, you're going to see a long stream of conversation. And the thing that really made me uh, feel a great need to take a failure bow when we had this pre-call yesterday was um, I have even interviewed Woody Zool about no estimates mm-hmm. and I never connected <laughs> no estimates with tracking cycle time. I just thought it was like people just, eh, it's just stupid. We suck at estimating. So don't bother just work. Right? Well, it's all about outcomes and they wave their hands like jazz hands. And I just, I, I feel kind of silly for the fact that I never connected those two things. Well, well, so like, so like, kind of, here's the deal, right? Um, so as you know, Dave, we have a we have a small dev team here. We do some internal product development. We do a little bit of product development on some side things. So I have like maybe yep. five or six developers that work for me. And so, and so, when we're building internal products, yeah. like we don't estimate either, right? Because I don't really care 
when something is in market. It's like, I trust my team. We're doing really good work. We're building the most valuable things we can possibly build. And we're moving the ball at a rate that I'm comfortable. But here's the thing, like I'm paying the bills. Right. And I that's a unique situation. You're not a startup. Yeah, it's a unique situation. Right? So I'm building, I'm building a product for our teams internally and for our clients. And I don't make any commitments to the clients. I don't, the, the team doesn't have to make you any commitments free. to me. But right now I've got that team redirected on, I don't want to say it's not, it's an external product, but it's not like we're doing it for somebody else. We're still doing it for ourselves, but it has non-leading agile clients that are going to run through it. Okay. And now we're like in the process where we have a sales pipeline that we're running and we're making and meeting commitments. And so the level of precision and, and having some sense for when we're going to be done mm -hmm. with a particular set of features so we know when we go sell them, that becomes more important. Now, we're not doing stupid things. Like we're not making really hard date commitments to anybody. We're right. giving you know, ranges and managing expectations and we're being super reasonable. But, but now, because we have non-leading agile people that are relying on this product, mm -hmm. now we, ha we have to have There's some idea. And right? yeah. when, you get into corporate, when you get into the corporate world and you actually have trade shows you have to hit or you have product launches that you have to meet, like you, have to have some, yeah. you have to have some idea of where you're going to be, like, when you're, like where you're going to be and when. Okay. And so, so, and so, yeah, go ahead. I want to go back to the similar size thing. In, in this mm -hmm. kind of vein thinking. Yeah. If I can get a team to get everything, like when I've interviewed Ron and Chet, Chet talks about everything's got to be a one. If I can get everything to a one. Sure. And you're saying that, that you are in effect estimating. You're I guess estimating. What, what I'm that. thinking is if you're developing the skill to, to break down these things into vertical slices that are all ones. Sure. Estimation isn't even a question. It doesn't matter anymore. Well, but, but you, but you, but you fundamentally are estimating, right? Okay. And, and this is where I get, so this is what I think is jacked up about um, the conversation around story points and planning poker and things like that. So, you know, I got introduced to all that stuff, like a lot of us through Mike Kev, right? And so agile estimating and planning. And so, so I cut my teeth on those techniques. And so to me, like what, what I always taught was like the, the value behind Fibonacci and, or going through the planning poker exercise is that, you know, everybody throws their card. Um, if everybody converges on the same thing, okay, cool, right? But if somebody has a one and somebody uh, does a five and everybody else is a three, you do something like, you know, the lowest person gets to say why they think it's low and the highest person gets to say why they think it's high. And then we have this really rich conversation and then we revote and, you know, kind of pain in the ass, but, but it's like what, what causes that to be effective is the conversation and right. the shared understanding that it creates, right? Is it perfect? Of course it's not perfect, right? We're agilists, right? At the end of the day, we, we understand that a story is um, independent, negotiable, valuable, estimatable, small, and testable, right. right? So if it's negotiable, right? So we get a rough idea of what it is, and then we bring it into sprint planning or something, and we, we talk about it, and we, and we have conversations, and we decide how to make it fit. Okay. Like to me, that's what all this stuff was about. It's, it's, it's just a tool for creating shared understanding. Totally. Um, with you. you, you get into the, now you get into like how the teams operate with the rest of the world. And, and I think fundamentally, um, the problem in organizations is I think there's a class of things that are relatively knowable where it, okay. it makes perfect, um, sense to do decomposition and creating similarly sized stories or playing 
planning poker and doing story points on those things. I think it's, there's like a class thing that's super reasonable. The, there's, there is a class of things where it is absolutely experimental and it's really, really high risk. And I've coached a lot of teams that are basically trying to invent math. They're trying right. to invent techniques that never existed. Right. And, and where I think sometimes that this conversation gets into is we're trying to estimate things that are largely unestimatable and we're, or we're trying to um, deliver in a code base that's really poorly architected and full of technical debt and defects. Mm-hmm. And, and so sometimes you get into this funny world where there's a class of things that are estimatable. And then there's a class of things that are probably not estimatable. And, and sometimes you have to think about that problem differently because the business is trying to bring something to market with a degree of certainty yeah. that is just inherently uncertain. Yeah. uncertain. And then you don't have, now we're not having an estimation conversation. We're having a risk management conversation. We're having a, how do we bring high risk things to market? Right. How do but, we manage our customer expectations when we're doing high risk things? But you understand that. I do. And I guess I feel like it's almost like they should have to sign a contract that says all the estimates are wrong and that's okay. All the plans will f- are wrong and that's okay. Well, because they, okay, they, so, they want that certainty. They need that security. Well, okay. So I'm going to play devil's advocate. I'm going to go against my thing. So if all plans are wrong, all estimates are wrong, then, then, you know, everybody signs off. Well, then at that point, like why estimate at all? Because right. it's the about way the that, conversation. It's all about well, having the way that, that discussion. The way that I've always thought, and this is the way I think about project planning, right? Is that any estimate, any backlog, any Gantt chart, any project plan is like a map of the terrain. It, it's not the terrain. It's a map of the terrain, right? So it kind of gets us <laughs> close. And then, yeah. and then like what we have to do, what we have to do is we have to inspect and adapt. We have to make good decisions. We have to negotiate scope. We have to negotiate implementation. Yeah. Because it's not acceptable to be late. Like everything in Agile, this is like from the earliest DSDM graphics that I got exposed to 20 years ago, where it's like, you know, the you know traditional project management, time, cost, and scope, pick two, but one has to float. Right. In practice, companies want to fix all three, all three and believe that they have certainty. Right. right. What Agile is largely about, it's about fixing time and cost, and it's about varying scope. Right. And so what we do is we estimate to create shared understanding. We estimate to rough in a scope and then we negotiate scope and implementation and all those things in real time to converge on maximizing value within time and cost constraints. Yeah. Like that's how it's supposed to work. Right. The, the problem is, is that we don't have good words for it a lot of times. And so, you know, we have leadership that is or management that's trying to fix all trips all three of the constraints. Right. We have agilists that are trying to fix two and float the third, but a lot of times we're talking past each other. Because because you know, in reality, like the business is trying to get something into market so they can make money. Yeah. And they're spending money on a dev team to get this revenue producing outcome. And then on the other side, you have developers that are dealing with a tremendous amount of risk and uncertainty. And they don't often know exactly what it's going to take. Like the product that I'm building yeah. um, with an external stakeholder, like it's not within our domain expertise. We've never done it before. So the team is stepping into it. And so in the early stages, we left it really fast and loose. And we just were like, okay, we're just going to get in and just see what this is all about. Right. And so we had 
some rough high-level epics. We had some rough interaction diagrams. We were trying to learn. We're experimenting in this space. So yeah. it's cool. So super open-ended. Like if you think about like in the early rough days, we're basically doing like inception and elaboration. Okay. Like we're trying to validate if there's a problem we can solve. We're trying to get the rough parts of the architecture, lots of risk, lots of uncertainty. Don't know if this thing's going to work. So I'm literally me betting dollars to right. see if there's something here. But I think there's a third, I want to argue that there's a third okay. group. And I think that there are a group that you probably, maybe you don't, just because of the work that you do and where you are, you don't bang into them as often as I do. Okay. Those are the people that think you can't do agile on projects with fixed scope and fixed cost. Those are the people that like, there's just this misunderstanding of the whole thing. And those people get to the management level and want to do this stuff. And so it's like a misunderstanding well, well, isn't that you it, can't resolve. Well, isn't it fair to say, like, I, I, I get there's a class of human beings, there's a class of managers that want to believe you can get to fixed time, fixed cost, fixed scope. Yeah. You can't. I mean, that's project management I, physics. <laughs> you can't. I know, but, you know, I, there's so many. I mean, what I you could do, right? Through. What you can do, like, if you're a, if you're a, um, the person who always comes to mind is like Glenn Alleman. Um, like he's a, like, I think he's a really pragmatic, he runs large military programs. I haven't really followed much of his stuff in a long time, but I used to read his blog all the time. And, and if you're doing like really good project management, Monte Carlo simulations, earned value, all kinds of things, yeah. like everything's a range, right? And you can model projects based upon ranges and likelihoods and, and like a mature leader would basically say, okay, the delivery is within a certain range. Mm -hmm. And then you would try to get delivery to happen within that range. Yeah. What we do on the software side a lot is, is we go fixed time, fixed cost, fixed scope. Nothing can, nothing can vary. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's just immature project management. So I get, we want that to be, but it's a little bit like, it's like that. I want, it's why I want to start swearing when I talk about this, right? It's like, it's like the, I want a pony syndrome. Well, I want it to be fixed time, fixed cost, fixed scope. And then yeah. you start to get into this conversation about, okay, so are the requirements fixed and knowable? Do we understand the solution with enough detail? Do we understand the estimates enough or the product enough to be able to estimate? Do we understand the technical debt and the, the architecture of the solution? Do we understand the human beings that are going to be applied? Do we understand what's going to go on in their personal lives? Like, I mean, there's so much risk and uncertainty <laughs> in any project. Like it's, it's naive. It's just naive. It's naive, but it doesn't get free. them to stop demanding the pony. I well, guess that's also, the thing. Okay. So this is what we have to do. This is where I get energetic again. It's like, what we have to do is like, we have to stop lying to people because, because now we're in a situation where there's a power dynamic. Well, you have my boss, like literally, I, I mean, literally, I, and this has gotten me in trouble in companies, but it's like, like I sat down with a VP a, a one time. And we had come up with a reasonably good project plan. And we were doing some agile stuff, but we were still Gantt charts and things like that. So we had created this project plan and we felt like we understood the scope. We felt like we had reasonable estimates mm -hmm. and we felt like the, the people that we could apply to it would do in a reasonable timeline. Yeah. And the VP pulls me in, he goes, I need to take two months out of the project plan. Can we do it? And I went, well, okay, so let me, let me tell you how I built this plan. So this is the scope as I understand it. Can we take any scope out? And he's like, no, we can't take any scope out. And we said, okay, well, so these are the estimates that the team gave us. Do we want to assume the estimates are inflated? No, we want to trust the team's estimates. 
Okay, cool. So do we have more people to apply to the plan? Um, no, we only have the team of six or eight. And I'm like, well, then. No. <laughs> no. You can't move it up two months. Yeah. And, and, it's like, and it's like everybody's scared to tell the truth. And so what you have to do is you have to sit in the truth. And, cool. and the truth is, is that things work a certain way. And, and it's like, unless you have perfect knowledge of the requirements, perfect knowledge of the system and the estimates going to take to build, and you have perfect knowledge that people are going to do it yeah. to calculate a time frame, then you have to deal with risk and uncertainty. You have to. That's the way grown up. So somebody said, I, I want to say it was like um, DeMarco or somebody, I might be getting the quote wrong, but it's like, it's like risk management is project management for grownups. It's like, it's like if you basically <laughs> sit there as a manager and say, I want fixed time, fixed cost, fixed scope, and yeah. you have to give it to me, you're like a little kid. And I apologize to all the people I'm potentially disrespecting in advance, but it's like, you're a little kid screaming, I want a pony. I want a pony. I want a pony. It's right. like, you're not getting a pony. Like it doesn't work that way. I, and, and if you, and if you demand that from your team, they're going to lie to you and they're going to tell you that they'll do it because they don't have any other choice to keep their jobs. Exactly. So they lie to you. I actually told that to a senior vice president of product one time. I'm like, the pressure you're putting on these teams, you, they are lying to you. You're, they're lying to you. You're going to your client and, and you're lying to them. And everybody um, knows they're lying. So what you have to do is you have to create an environment where you can stabilize the throughput, stabilize the velocity, learn how to make trade-offs. And it's going to take a little bit to get that. She said, how long? I'm like, three months. And she goes, just shoot me. Because she's under so much pressure to say yeah. what the organization can well, do, but they haven't built an organization that can make and meet commitments. I think that's the thing, and and a, this is a, an issue that extends beyond just agile. But there are a lot of people who you can show up with your it's physics, it's physics, and they're going to go, no, the Earth is flat, Mike, and you're going to go, <laughs> no, I can prove to you that it's not, and they're going to go, yeah, that's fake. So yeah. they're going to so keep cool, demanding right? it and. Mm -hmm. They're going to get and, lied to. And ultimately, ultimately, they'll get fired because they are they're not going to be able to lead that organization to any kind of success. Yeah. So so at the end of the day, right? So there have been clients that I've worked with, especially in the early days when it was when I was more of a solo entrepreneur, right? There are clients where I just I you basically look, you tell them the truth. I've actually asked a room full of leaders, is it better here to say yes and to fail or to say no, but this is what I can do and when I can do it? And I've literally had people tell me it is, it is our culture to say yes and fail. And you cannot do anything other than say yes and fail. So, okay. Okay. So then if it's, say yes and, and fail, right? If that's what's safer for you in your job, then, then do that. If that's what you need to do. I want to shift it a little bit. If that's the, if that's the kind of company, cause I do believe there are, you're right. And there's for sure, companies, companies out there different. like that. Yeah, and for sure. if I'm somebody who works at a company like that, like I'm always hesitant to say to somebody, you should quit your job. But I meet a lot of people in class. I'm like, you should quit your job. Like, it, it's not well, going to work. You're not going to get what you want. You're going to have to go somewhere else. But that puts people at risk too. I mean, it, well, you know, man, it's like it's tough, right? I mean, it's like as a as a leader who runs a company now, like I have empathy for the fact that there are business things that kind of must be true. You must be profitable. You must sell deals. You must keep people off the bench. You must do all these things, right? And the pressure to do that is is just Intense. insane, yeah. right? It's insane, right? So these leaders, they're not, I don't think they're trying to be bad people. They're just under so much pressure 
They don't understand the physics of it. And so they're just, all they're doing is rolling that pressure downhill. Yeah. And that's um, as a, as a, you know, there was something, it's been a long time since I've read, um, read a PMBOK. I think the last PMBOK I read was 15 years ago. It was like version three or something like that. And there's like a code of ethics in, in the front of that book. Right. And, and, and I don't remember exactly what's in it, but it's somehow it's like, tell the truth, like tell the truth. And (laughs) as a, as a professional project manager who is a PMP and is, um, operating against the code of conduct. But you're ethically obligated to tell the truth. But they also and give so, you an ocean of tools you can use to hide the truth. Well, well, true, right? But you can also use those Defend tools to truth. tell the truth, right? Yes. So if you choose to lie by using the tool, I mean, you know, so again, it's like at some point in time, you have to appeal to professionalism. You have to appeal to integrity. And, and you know, so if if you are in a situation where the values of the organization that you're working in or the 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 integrity threshold of the organization that you're working in does not um, coincide with your values and beliefs. Like, yeah, you're going to compromise your integrity to work there. You know, the conversation you and I always get into, and and I feel for you um, running CSM classes all the time, right? And the environments that people, oh, and I, yeah, well, I, I know you love it and you're gifted at it, right? You're brilliant at it. But the, but like those questions, they're impossible questions. There's some possible questions, right? And so it's like, it's like, how do I, how do I um, get people to do agile that are low integrity and want to fix the triple constraints and just want me to say yes to everything? You don't. Yeah. I think for me, it's, it's like, what world do you want to live in? Do you want to live in that world where you keep pretending the earth is flat or do you want to be a little more realistic about Yeah. It's like, it's like, so this is like my, you know, I remember back 15 years ago or something, there's a lot of articles on PMI's website before they did the ACP and started acquiring agile companies and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, where they're like, people would post articles like, is your company right for agile? And almost always the answer to the question was no. (laughs) Right. And so in your existing company there, it's, you're probably best cut out for waterfall, but waterfall is not I mean, it's funny even saying waterfall, it feels like such a boogeyman, almost like a straw man thing. Like, I don't know that anybody's doing, doing a waterfall. Most of the time, no, people they are. Doing, well, I know, but the, I think in practice they're doing just ad hoc, whatever, right? Yeah. Kind of a thing. But let's say waterfall. There's people out there doing waterfall. So is your company built for agile? No, but you're not going to get, you're not going to get what you need from doing waterfall. Big batches are dead, right? There's no world in which big batch, late risk management, late testing, late deployment is the way to go. No world where that's the way to go, in my opinion. So the question is, is is you almost have to be agile in today's. You have to do incremental and iterative development. You have to mitigate risk as you go. You have to test as you go. You have to deploy and get feedback as you go. You almost have to, to be competitive. And so in that world, you have to ask yourself is what conditions must I create so that I can operate with greater agility? Yeah. And that's the question that we set out to try to solve. And so it's like, I don't, I never had interest in answering impossible questions. How do I do scrum if I don't have a product owner? The answer is you don't, right? How do I do, how do I do scrum if I don't have a complete cross-functional team? You don't. How do I do safe if I can't encapsulate a value stream? You don't. How do I create safe if I can't get everybody in the room to do big room planning? You don't. You just don't. Okay. So I want to. Right change the question a little bit what people i told you i was going to be at least i'm not swearing no i'm, I'm, I'm waiting for it I, i'm no, all ready no. to go man it's my um, professionalism overrides my desire to swear so 
but it what didn't override my desire to put on a shirt with a collar. So, you know, what condition should I create? But going back to the metrics topic, though, yeah. is there like a question that people can ask that helps them figure out what metrics they should be focusing on? Because I feel like for me, like the whole thing is rooted in people are staring at the wrong thing. And, and, well, and well, so like, so at the end of the day, right? So at the end of the day, like I'm, I'm not on the ground coaching and, and my teams have done some miraculous things with metrics. Mm-hmm. And, and so I tend to think like when I, uh, when I'm in the transformation space, I think of metrics on three levels. I think about, are we, are we executing against the plan we put in place? So there's like progress metrics. And then there's like um, capability metrics. Like, are we improving our ability to estimate or to plan or to make and meet commitments, things like that. And then the third one, most important one, is am I getting the business results? Am I creating more products my customers want that they're willing to sell? Okay. So um, progress against plan is a leading indicator for performance. Performance is a leading indicator against business results. And so, and so there's, there's lots of things that you can measure. Um, from an execution perspective, what I generally care about, um, it's, it's all around throughput and however you want to measure throughput. So if it's... Okay. If it's, if it's a, a Kanban team, then it's almost always around like cycle time, lead time, pack time, because what you want in a Kanban system is you want continuous flow and you want like stability, right? You want the flow through the system to be and an indicator what for you're when you're going to get through the backlog. Yeah. That's what it comes down to, okay. right? Or how long it's going to take to handle an interrupt, something like that. Okay. Um, if it's a scrum team, it's some version of stable velocity. Right. Okay. I want to be able to do um, the same number of similarly sized features every um, or user stories every sprint. Or if I'm doing variably sized features or stories, I want to be able to have stable velocity. OK. Right. So stable velocity, stable throughput. Um, almost always, um, like at a program or product or portfolio level, you're looking for some sort of stable throughput indicator. Okay. Or maybe it's can I deliver against a release scope? Right, some form or fashion, it always comes back to that. It so, always comes back to: Can you predictably make and meet commitments? Can you deliver with high quality? You know that kind well, of thing. That's okay, so I want to check on something here. Okay. I feel like when people think about metrics, they want to know like when am I going to deliver? And the questions that you just asked to me all point at: I want to understand the system. So maybe maybe mm-hmm. I can't see when I'm going to deliver, but if I'm looking at cycle time, I'm understanding where things are getting jacked up. If I'm well, looking at well, velocity, I suggest, I'm seeing where things are breaking well, down. Well, so that's true, right? So in a Kanban system, you can use um, blocked work, um, you know, you know, things that are stuck as sure. an indicator of system performance, right? You can use flow as an indicator of system performance. But but I will tell you. I mean, there's a reason on our website we, that we listed the, the four number one things that, I, that people ask me about. It's like predictability, quality, early return on investment, cost savings. Okay. I added later on innovation and product fit, right? There's some pressure, like sometimes we'll get into like net promoter score, um, employee satisfaction. You know, sometimes there's some culture indicators, things like that. Right. But almost always businesses want to know when you're going to be done, what am I going to get for my money? Period. Right. Because it's like we're making investments of dollars. We make investments of dollars to get a return. You don't have infinite money to solve the problem. You don't have infinite time to solve the problem. Right. So on some level, we have to get good at making and meeting commitments. Now, again, where that gets abused is 
the fixed time, fixed costs, um, fixed scope managers that yeah. are playing the I want a pony game, right? Okay. That's what gives all this a bad name. If, if we can use estimates and planning and throughput indicators to give us a rough idea of when we think we're going to be done, mm -hmm. and then we reasonably negotiate scope, the scope of the user story, the scope of the feature, the scope of the epic, sometimes we take epics out, sometimes we take features out, sometimes we take user stories out, sometimes we negotiate the implementation details of epics, features, and user stories. But as long as we can negotiate the scope to deliver within time and cost constraints, the act of estimating just gets us in the ballpark. It, it allows us to rough it in so that we can negotiate in the small to maximize value. Okay. And, and again, like risk management is project management for adults. It's like if we don't understand and accept that there is inherently uncertainty in the development process, if just nothing else, the presence of humans in the system is going to, is going to introduce risk and uncertainty. It just, it's going to, right? People not getting along can slow your project down. People getting sick cannot slow your project. Even if you had perfect requirements and perfect estimates, the human beings are inherently fallible. And so if we're not dealing with the reality of risk and uncertainty, yeah. then we're not managing projects. We're just hoping and we're praying and we're lying to people. But we really want the pony, Mike. But we really want a pony. I get it. <laughs> Like ponies are really cool. I want a pony too, right? <laughs> this um, is awesome. Yeah. And so it's like, it's so like, this is what, this is what I just feel like. And, and so sometimes, you know, it's interesting, you know, being on podcasts, you know, you and I have been doing this for a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been producing content and talks for a long time. There's a part of me that's just exhausted writing. And I understand like why guys that were writing, gals that were writing 10, 15 years ago, just stopped because it's like you're saying the same things over and over because it's like at some point in time, it's like, it's a little bit like, you know, getting to our, our constant weight loss thing. It's like, everybody wants to be thin and fit, but who wants to exercise and eat right? You know, the, the hard answer is you will not be thin and fit. You will not be healthy unless you exercise and eat right. You just won't be. There is no silver bullet. There is no pill that's sustainable. There just isn't, right? And people people try to, you know, you can get, you know, you can take weight loss, you can take diet pills and you can do weight loss surgery and you can do all these things. But at the end of the day, if you don't change your habits, you don't change the system. None of that stuff is sustainable, change. right? Yeah. None of that stuff is sustainable. And you will never get better unless you can deal with the reality. All right. And again, Whoa. sometimes that gets all the way up to the top and you have to. Sometimes there are some things that you have to do in order to be able to change the fundamental Yeah, ecosystem. sacrifices yeah, yeah. you have to make. Okay, All right. cool. So thank you. And I want to now shift gears. Completely. Okay, we're shifting gears. So this is somewhat tied to this, but yesterday okay. when, we, when we did the other interview, we yeah. started to talk about creativity. Anthony, yeah, we did, we're doing back-to-back -back podcasts. They won't get yeah. released back-to-back, -back, but we did yeah. two days in a row. That's pretty cool. It's the first time ever. It is cool. Yeah, yeah. We should, we, our velocity is really good. Um, <laughs> yeah. We talked about duality and we were talking yeah. about tension between different things. And I was just sort of hoping you could maybe kind of expand on that a little bit and talk about what you've learned about kind of maintaining this push-pull thing with the work that you're doing and, and your own ability to be creative. Okay, so let me give you a little bit. So so this has been a this has been like one of the things that's like very present in mind, this has been a very difficult year in business, right? 2022 is is has been an interesting economic climate um, to do consulting in. And so um, there's been a lot of stress in the system, but also for me personally, there's been a lot of growth and a lot of awesome stuff that goes on. 
So this idea of like duality has been like very present for me. So it's like there have been moments where like some really bone crushing stress, but some really um, awesome things are just coexisting like right in the same instant of time. And so this idea is is interesting. Um, maybe another angle that's like very present is as we've grown and as we understand like what certain people are good at or gifted at, um, you know, sometimes you'll find that there's, um, you know, people who are more creative, problem solvers, really high-end solutioners mm -hmm. tend to be less structured and disciplined. And then there's people who tend to be really structured and disciplined, but they're not always your best, like creatives and big picture thinkers. Mm -hmm. And so there's like a duality in a lot of environments between we need people that can really creatively solution partnered with people that are really disciplined in execution can actually get things done. Um, there's, it manifests a little bit in Scrum, right? The product owners oftentimes are like cathedral builders, right? They want to, they want to take over markets and add all this feature and all this capability and all this really cool stuff. But then at some point in time, the team actually has to execute it and make it work. Mm -hmm. So that was what was kind of in the space when we were talking about it. It's like this duality of, and these tensions and these balances between, um, free thinking, whatever's possible and structured, disciplined execution, okay. really awesome things that are happening, coinciding with really hard things that are happening. So I don't know. That was the space I was in. Is well, that, how do you, yeah. how do you kind of sense and maintain the right amount of tension? I mean, like with the, with running leading agile or with anybody who's trying to do yeah. transformation, you do have to have that, that sort of grinding a little bit for things to emerge for for the stuff to spark right how do you know when it's not too much on one side or the other because you're talking about pretty extreme yeah. highs and lows right so it can be yeah yeah i don't know man I, I don't i don't know that there's there's a there's a clear answer to it it's like um you know maybe maybe like a clue right um i don't know that this is the answer but it's like a clue as i was at a, a conference that i go to every year it's a really cool conference everybody wants to look at it's called dent d-e-n-t okay website's dentthefuture.com and it's um imagine like a early days of like a ted talk kind of thing like really combinatorial creativity a lot of really interesting speakers you'll get academics and astronauts and entrepreneurs and just all kinds of really interesting people get up on stage and share stories and talk about stuff and there's a lady um a researcher i, I can't remember what university i want to say stanford but it might not be stanford and she was talking about um uh phases of learning in human beings and like early stages when we're young and adolescents and then when we become older adults and then we become like grandparents and things and talking about how like being young is like a period of like really high learning it's a high experimentation mm -hmm. and then as we get older we start to figure out we have to like exploit our learnings and like you know get shelter and raise families and um, support our kids and things like that and then we have a period of life after we're done with that, where we're kind of almost like back into learning mode and transferring knowledge and such. And it was really a fascinating talk from this lady. And so maybe the answer to your question is when things are young and experimental, mm -hmm. we have to make sure that we are, um, we are creating enough space to try things and to learn with a lot of safety. But okay. once we've, once we've, um, centered on that, like once we've learned enough, then we have to put in more structure and control. So maybe there's like a, a level of awareness between like what stage of life we're at. 
Sure. Um, it gets a little bit to what we're talking about with metrics. It's like yeah. if we're doing something that's incredibly high risk, fraught with a ton of uncertainty where we don't know the answer, probably not a good idea to go to our customers and say, we're going to have that done by the end of the month because yeah. we don't know, right? We're experimentation. But once we figured out the math, once we figured out the core algorithm, right. and now we're just adding user interface capabilities or reports or something like that, things we know how to do. Yeah. Now that's the time for making and meeting commitments. So, so, if it, so I, yeah. If it's transformation then, in the beginning, it is just learning what's possible and seeing when we spin up those pilots, how badly it ravages the thing we have in place. And then well, getting to a place where we can actually tune stuff up and get it to work well. Well, part of the challenges we have and like when somebody calls us about a transformation is they say, well, how long is this transformation going to take? Like, I don't know. Right. I don't know. Right. So what we do is we try to bound it up front and we'll say, OK, this is what the first two days are going to look like. And this is what we're going to discover. And this yeah. is what's going to be the state of the business case and the plan and everything after two days. And then we're going to do a six to eight week engagement and then we're going to learn more and then we're going to have a roadmap and we'll get to a next level of certainty. And then we'll do a pilot and we'll get to the next level of certainty. And then once we've gone through the discovery and the definition, we go through the pilot, then it's like we have a better understanding of what the character of the organization is and we can get a better sense for how long the rest of it's going to go. Yeah. But to some degree, you have to be willing to invest in that early stage experimentation so that you can learn enough that you can start to make and meet commitments. And, and so I think there's a discipline to being able to leave something open. Like there's parts of leading agile's consulting model that are incredibly structured and incredibly disciplined right. that we've been doing for 12 years that we can largely wash, rinse and repeat. Yeah. But there's a lot of things in, in not only what we know to do, but where we see things emerging, where there's opportunities to advance into business agility, enterprise agility, hardware agility, you know, things that are not as well defined, where you can still solve those problems. You have the domain expertise, but but they're not as repeatable yeah. at this level of maturity. I don't know that they'll ever be more repeatable. I, I would think that they will be, but until you've done it enough, it's a little bit of a... So, so what's interesting is when you're thinking about making investments in really high risk um, activities... Like that dollars, the dollars that you invest in the early stages to learn, you have to build that in and you have to say, okay, these investments are really high risk and uncertain, yeah. but if we win, the reward has to be really high. It's a little bit like venture capitalists, right? It's like, what do they say? Like one out of a hundred um, angel funded companies will be successful. That's why a VC will get such a high percent out of an angel funded or a, you know, an A round kind of investment because, because that one win has to cover the other 99 losses. Well, also, yeah, go ahead. I was just thinking about like, we talked about skiing before you can tell somebody I can teach you how to ski in like three days, but I can't teach to teach you how to ski where you're dropping out of a helicopter and going straight down a mountain by yourself. I don't know how long that's going to take because yeah, we don't know when yeah, you're going to get to that level of performance. Yeah, for sure. I think there's, I think there's probably something there. If I was going to try to build on that, like, I mean, you know, I've put a lot of energy in learning how to ski over the last couple of years and, you know, my kids, um, you know, they, they're not the same place in life as me. And so they don't get to go out to Vail and hire instructors and, you know, maybe ski five weeks, five weeks out of a year or something. Right. They come right. out once a year and they're good enough to ski, right. They can do, they can do all the, 
they greens and they can do some of the blues. They probably fall down more than I do. Um, but they were on skis. Um, you know, they didn't learn to ski as kids. Like they got, they learned to ski as late teens, early twenties and, you know, but they're, they're competent skiers. They can do whatever, um, you know, to become to your point, really, really proficient. Like, like who knows, right. Who knows how long it's going to take, you know, if they were able to invest the time that I've been able to invest, they probably would be way better than me right now. Um, you know, I'm an old guy, right. So I'm getting to, I'm learning a little bit slower. I'm a little more scared to fall than they are. I don't, I don't heal as fast as they do. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, there's just a lot of risk and uncertainty. So if you're going to invest in things that are really risky and uncertain, then yeah. you got to make sure that that return is high enough to justify the risk. And, and again, I I've said this a bunch of times. It's like, you know, risk management is project management for adults. Yeah. It's like, it's like, you have to understand the risk profile of what you're investing in. You have, you, yeah. you have to, right. And you can't pretend things are certain when they're not. And so you have to be able to sit in that duality of, Ooh. gosh, I really need this to be certain, but it's Damn. not. So what are you going to do? You so pulled yeah, it all together I, there. Right together, that man. was badass. Yeah. yeah. There you go, all man. right. So now that's, I, have... I will say that's actually something about, I appreciate how my brain works is I can run a bunch of threads yeah. and pull them all back to a, a point. That was um, really good. Yeah, man. If I ever get <laughs> Alzheimer's, I'm screwed. <laughs> so, yeah. um, all right. Weird question time. Okay, cool. So I did an interview with Matthew Oates a few weeks ago, and he talked about yeah. these three albums that he, he has that he puts on when he's trying to focus on his work. Okay. And I'm wondering, is there music you listen to when you're trying to focus? And if so, what is it? So if I'm trying to focus that, so I'm, I'm kind of going through a shift. If you would have asked me like a year ago, like, like I tend to like really punchy rock music. Um, I grew up on heavy metal. I like a lot of the nineties alternative stuff. Um, it's so I like, I like really aggressive music with beats and stuff. Well, I found that that's not necessarily the best thing for me to, um, concentrate. Yes. And so like, if I'm sitting in my office more often than not, um, this is very specific as I will put on a Pandora station that is seated with the band, the nineties band Oasis. That's okay. just what I, and, and, and that, that seed just artist, enough, but not too much. It's just enough, right? It's not, it's not over the top. It's not super punchy. Um, that creates a nice mix of relatively modern music that kind of is able, I enjoy the music, but it fades into the background easy for me. Okay. Um, what I've been listening to a lot is um, like, I would almost say like meditation music. Like uh -huh. almost kind of like new agey, like, like something that you might encounter in like a spa if you're yeah. going to go get a massage or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, so that kind of a thing is, is a little bit what's putting me into a good headspace nowadays. Okay. So, yeah. Cool. All right. Yeah. Well, this is great. Well, yeah, thank you, easy. sir. You're very welcome, man. Thanks for having I hope me. You enjoy your, are you going anywhere good? Yeah. So, um, so we've been kind of, so all my kids are out of the house, right? 52. My last one's in college. It's pretty neat. And so we're empty nesters. And so, um, my wife and I and two other couple friends of ours are, um, it's our second annual adult Disney trip. Wow. And so we're going to Orlando flying out tomorrow and we're gonna spend four days in the park, one day at the pool. And it's like adult Disney, um, tequila tastings, awesome restaurants, high-end hotels, um, we're doing some back safari thing where they're feeding us and giving us like a back. So we're, so, I mean, we'll do our share of small world and roller yeah, coasters yeah. and stuff like that. But, um, 
like you can get like you can reserve a seat for like uh, wine and desserts while you watch the fireworks. Wow! So it's a big difference from like sitting on the curb with a lollipop and a bag of popcorn with a bunch of little kids watching, fighting the crowds to watch uh, yeah. fireworks. So, okay. Yeah. Cool. So that's what I'm doing for the next week. And I'm telling you, um, I'm in a good place. Companies in a good place. Accounts are in a good place. I'm in a good place. And I am looking forward to having six or seven days of um, solid relaxation. Awesome, man. Well, enjoy that. your time off. That probably sounds like a lot of people's worst nightmare, but man, I love it. Doesn't sound like something I'd want to do, but if if don't get me wrong, like my wife and I are going to Sedona, Arizona, in a couple weeks, and we're gonna have a couple days, just the two of us, massages and reading and good some of that music you were talking about. Some of that music I'm talking about for sure. Um, So, like, I like my vacations to come in a lot of different ways, but this is a fun group to hang out with, and I can't wait to spend the week with them. So it's good stuff. Yeah. All right, man. Well, thanks. Have a good time. Awesome. You got it, man. See you, Dave. Talk to you next time. Bye. All right.